guess you all know now what the theme is today, and I don't know if you over the weekend you felt that theme at home of love. And um, there's the story that God said to Adam, I'm going to make you a helper, a companion. Uh, what would you like your companion to be like? And I wonder if you were asked that question, what you might ream off. Well, Adam said, well, I want someone who is humorous, witty, intelligent, compassionate, caring, loving, trusting, polite, generous, and of course, beautiful. Well, God paused for a minute after all that list, and he said to Adam, well, you know, that sort of list is going to cost you an arm and a leg. So Adam seemed a bit dejected, and then he brightened up, and he said, I know, what can I get for a rib? So there you go. Um, I hope that the rib you chose, or the rib that you came from, uh, you've been happy with over the years. And I'm going to talk about uh, God's love. Now, I was on town pastor duty last night, so if I look a bit haggard, please forgive me, but uh, I feel okay at the moment. Um, And that was because I love the people. And there is um, a love in action heart in Ipswich, and that's an appropriate use of the word love, I think, that we're out there because we love. And it's amazing how many of those people out there really know why we're there. And the times that people come up and say, you know, I'll never forget what was done for me and how you got me home safely or things like that. So we can show love, and this is what I'm going to talk about, because as we love, uh, it is an expression then of God's love to this world. So love, whether human or divine, is the deepest expression of the personality and of the closeness of personal relationships. Yet we use it for all sorts of different things, the word, don't we? First of all, this came in our door recently. You know, you love our car insurance. You know, I mean, and it is used so loosely, this word love, isn't it? And yet the difference between saying that love Ipswich is so different because that kind of love is love in action and love that is no conditions. You can guarantee you might love their insurance, but there'll be conditions attached to it, won't there? And that, that's what is, is a difference. But you see, the Bible language also uses different words for each type of love, and that is definitely another sermon, which I'm not going to go into today. But I mean, it isn't rocket science, is it, for us to understand that when the Bible talks of love of parent for child, brother for sister, friends for each other, child for parent, they are very different from those of adult partners. Sadly, much of our displays of love are skewed or they are conditional. Uh, What I mean is they're loved with conditions attached to it. The children sometimes are saying, if you're naughty, mummy and daddy won't love you anymore. Uh, You may be lucky enough never to have come from a family like that, but I assure you they exist because mine did. Or I'll give you a hug if you do so and so and so and so. And even adults play this game withholding sex in marriage if it suits them. Now, again, I don't know if I'm seeing in with smiles or not, but it is true. We all manipulate other people in love. Now, oops, did I say that S word in church? I can't talk about sex in church, can I? Yes, I can. Because you can't separate sex, love, and God. He made us to increase. And how are we supposed to do that if we don't know about the S word? The trouble is the church has chucked it out when the church should be embracing that word instead of Satan who's really taken hold of it and had a field day with it. 
we're like those prudish mothers when we're like a church like that who say to their daughters, sex is dirty, it's vile, it's disgusting. Save it for someone you love. Yeah? So, you know, as Satan goes on and uses all this, we really need to be embracing it, but embracing it in the right sort of way. There would be those who would eliminate sex when they speak of love, supposing that they're making it more holy. The world uses sex to advertise cars, to debase, to excite or exploit or abuse. But in these cases, love doesn't really get a look in. Let it be very clear, God created sex and sexuality as something sacred, something set apart, something to hold in high honour between two people who love each other and are committed to each other. That's why it's in the commandments. The Bible tells us that this is the place where a man and a woman become one flesh. There is a mystical union created. Paul describes it as a mystery, a holy mystery. Not only is this the place where the two become one, but it's the place where new life is conceived. The Song of Songs is about creating those special moments between two lovers. That's how their love thrives. The Song of Songs is one case where our human love is actually a good model for how we can create a relationship with God. This is how we honour God with our hearts. This is the spirit of the law that we love. We build that relationship with God. We nurture it like lovers in search of the perfect time and place. We might want to put some care into creating an atmosphere in which our relationship with God can thrive intimately. We should get passionate about Jesus. You remember, and it was a little bit on that, a little bit when you're friends, if you can remember that way back, some of you, but when you loved somebody or you thought you were in love and you couldn't stop talking about them, couldn't you? And you bored everybody else silly, didn't you? Oh, so-and-so, oh, the list that. I hope you won't bore everybody silly, but when, it's, when you're passionate about Jesus, you'll want to talk about him because you'll be excited about him. And when we do this, we find ourselves surrounded with the beauty and the joy and the abundance and the loving caress of the divine. Sadly, many have suffered at the hands of love, as it's been called, with the loss of a loved one through death, which has brought great pain. And I'd just like to tell you the end of, of a saying, and it says, you can lose love only if it is withdrawn. Death does not take it away. Or there are those in broken relationships that have caused them to become bitter and, and hard. And they follow Adam and Eve by blaming. Adam blamed God for giving Eve. He said, this woman you gave me. And then he also then blamed her for giving the fruit. She gave me the fruit. And then Eve blamed the snake. He told me to do it. And ever since then, we've been blaming uh, into this blame culture ever since when everything goes wrong. Blame is a defense mechanism and it, take, it, it is, is against taking responsibility for our own lives or to switch off love. You know, we do have a love switch and we can switch it off. I worked in prison as a chaplain and there were many men there who were switched off from love, either to receive it or to give it. And it can be a habit for those who have experienced abuse or loss or rejection at a very deep level and when this happens, you eventually manage to get through it. But how do you get through it? You don't want that pain anymore. So what do you do? You don't love anyone again. You don't let yourself be loved again. 
Because if you don't love, you can't be hurt. Only when you love, you can be hurt. And the more you love, the more you can be hurt if you lose it. Love is to suffer. We can't love someone unless we're prepared to be hurt. I hope people agree with that. So what happens? Well, we can become bitter or we can become better. We can begin to live by lashing out at others with criticism and hatred and violence, especially to those who love us. But no one gains if we live by that code. It is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Now you say, that's the most stupid saying I've ever heard, but think about it. It isn't, you know. It is better to have loved and even lost because I think every time you are loved and have loved somebody, you become a different person and hopefully a more positive person, a person who is capable of understanding what it's like to be loved and to love back. And it's a bit like the stray cat. You find a kitten maybe, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where the children or somebody's brought something home that's been uh, rather lost and, and starving and whatever. Now that kitten with its last bit of breath might be spitting and snarling at somebody who, who rescues it. They get it home though, they give it a wash, get rid of its fleas and they feed it and they, they show it love. And in a few weeks, that same kitten is perhaps rubbing your leg there and coming to you and sitting on your knee and giving you comfort. The same kitten, but we know what's changed, what has changed the attitude. The thing is, are you still that spitting cat, afraid of anyone want, uh, who wants to be close to you or wants to help you? Are you the one on the way to realizing that you can only benefit from love when you learn to accept it and to trust it? But where does that kind of love exist? How is it we have that capacity to love like that in the first place? In the reading on 1 John, it talks completely, 43 times love is mentioned just in a couple of chapters. And that is love where a Christian loves God in another person. With so much love around, it proves that we were created to love. Why? Because God is love. Do you believe God is love? Now, it might seem an odd question, but many don't think about it or even believe that. What they think is God is mean and miserable, and I wonder where they got that from, and it's probably, they'll say, the Ten Commandments. But it was an unfortunate way that it was written as thou shalt not. Nobody likes to be told you won't do something, will they? But it was just unfortunate. If it's said in a different way, you won't do these things, you won't do this, you won't... Because what God was saying, you won't do them because if you follow me, those things would, and you, if, and you do those things, those things will destroy your lives and the lives of the people you love and your community that you live in. So it was a positive thing. He was saying you won't do them if you love me. So if we think of it in that, but instead it's always seen as this downer on us and that we're not allowed to do anything that's exciting or nice or anything because that's what the list is all about, but it isn't really like that. And because he loves us so much, the pain is greater when we choose to destroy ourselves and each other in the pretext of love. If we allow God's love to enter our lives, he can change how we think. There is only one who loves you unconditionally and has shown that through his son, Jesus. 
Now, there's two hearts on there, and one says, I love you, and the other's got a heart, <coughs> um, an arrow pierced through it. Yes, he loves you, but it took an arrow pierced through the heart to show how much he loved you. And that was through his son, Jesus. Now, if that means nothing to you, and you argue that it's hardly the same as having the real thing, I take your point. But if we deny God, not only he and we and the world will be the losers. God's spoken, written, proven, enduring love for you is the foundation on which you have to build your self-worth. We are human, so we let each other down, don't we? And that leads to feeling worthless or unloved. God can restore your capacity to let yourself be loved again. Now, how can I say that God will heal you? How will you cope if you're kicked in the teeth again? Because that's what you're really saying. If I'm going to allow myself to be loved and to love someone, that can happen again. And yes, it can. We're human beings. We will let somebody down. But because God created you to love and to be loved, he will be there with you in the future. If he enables you to love again and to receive love again, he'll be there even if, as Richard mentioned, it's not a smooth road, that you go through that rocky paths or anything. He'll be there to give you that strength to come out better and not bitter. So how can we know God is love? And God proves he loves us in many ways in the things we take for granted around us. And I thought I'd just show a few pictures to show that. First of all is the creation. We learned this morning about creation. And in that creation, there are some beautiful things. I've only chosen just a couple of things. There's the aurora borealis, for instance. And I mean, how can that not say, I love you? And the sunset, the beautiful sunsets, and also the Niagara Falls is just one of the other things. I mean, it's so immense, isn't it? And yet that is, well, say for free, but you've got to get there in the first place. But, you know, sunsets you can certainly look for. Do you ever look in the sky and actually then say, you know, God loves me that much that he's given me that? And then he made a covenant with his people and he sent the rainbow. And that was a sign um, that he would not uh, destroy the earth again. And then, of course, there's an eclipse. And the eclipse is like having... That's, you can call that God's engagement ring, can't you? Because we come, become the brides of Christ when we acknowledge him as Lord and Saviour. And then the best thing of all to show love, isn't it? To, show, to share and to give of something of yourself. Because it's all right saying, oh, I'll give you that so-and-so, and I'll give you all these presents if they're actually somebody else's. But give of yourself. And God gave of himself in Christ on the cross and that was the ultimate in the love that he has for us you see the things we see around us through those things that don't cost us anything can remind us what a great god we have and we can have a wonderful relationship with him and through that relationship we can begin to give love shown through the everyday things that we do in living out our lives once upon a time it meant giving a distressed child a hug and haven't we gone over the top when a teacher or a, a nurse or anybody else, when somebody is hurting, can't put their arm around a child and just comfort them? You know, I mean, it's the world gone mad, isn't it? And it isn't, isn't doing anybody any favours. I can understand the reasoning and the, the, the care for a child, 
But, you know, in front of others, then you can't just do that. Oh, you're frightened of losing your job because you do it. I think it's dreadful. And how much a touch can mean something. There are people, particularly in the prisons again, that can go years with nobody ever touching them. People in mental homes, people in, with di severe disabilities. And um, I was thinking, when on New Year's Eve, I was on town pastor duty, and outside one of the clubs was this massive chicken. Now, I mean, he, I assume it was a he, because it really was a massive chicken. I think it was to do with the club rather than somebody going around. But he came around and he gave me a big hug. Now, you know, just that, and it actually felt really, you know, really as if somebody cared about you. And I thought, wow, if that does, it got me to thinking about other things as well. And <clears throat> there, there was a program on some time back, and I don't know if you saw it, and it was about this man who uh, was challenged to go outside the tube stations with a notice and asking people to give him a hug. And they were convinced the media that would... Uh, for, um, uh, watching him do this and, and taking things for the television. But people eventually were all hugging one another. And in, in the States, there was a judge called the Hugging Judge. Now, I'm sure we'd never get an expression like that in the prisons I ever worked in. They'd never call any of the judges Hugging Judge. But that's what he was called, because he used to hug people all the time. But he was asked by a friend to go into home for a massive place for the disabled. And Lee, his name is, and it's a true story, he didn't find that easy because he'd never hugged people, quadriplegics or terminally ill or mentally retarded people before. He'd gone around like that in the general public. That was a different thing. But anyway, he agreed to go and they put a hat on each of them and they put a heart, uh, pinned a heart on their chest and gave a big hug. And nursing staff went round with them and they were hours doing this and they got to the final ward and there were the 34 of the worst cases there. And as he walked in the room, he said he felt the weight of that place. But out of his commitment to share the love of God, he began. And finally, he came to this man called Leonard. And he, he said, he thought, there's no way, you cannot reach this man. He sat there, obviously, in his own little world, uh, drooling in, in his bib, and he, he was going to turn away. And his friend said, but look, he's a fellow human being, and you've made a commitment so he put the hat on him and he put the heart on his chest the same as he'd do, they'd done with everybody else. And he gave this man a big hug. And suddenly, Leonard began to squeal. I mean, he really squealed. And, and so Lee stepped back and he wondered what he'd done. He thought, oh, I've hurt him, whatever. And the, the senior nurse said, it's the first time in 23 years we've seen Leonard smile. That was the way he smiled. Because somebody outside that start had given him a hug. And that hug makes a difference. Now, do you, would you all agree that touching you know, a, a genuine hug can make a difference? Yeah? Anybody not agree? Anybody, you know, it's okay, you can not agree. Do you think, okay, well, I'm going to challenge you then. None of you put your hands up. So what I'm going to do is ask you to stand. And, and you're all going to, for the sake of time, you're going to hug your nearest neighbors. And if... I'll have a hug at all. <laughs> well, I didn't think I'd have to call order anyway, but um, haven't, haven't the churches done away with a terrible thing when they've, they've done away with the peace? You know, if you mention that in Baptist churches, oh, it's so Church of England. And yet, 
I had, I mean, some shake hands, I know, but I was in church for many years, and everybody hugged each other. It took so long, you know, you to allow about another quarter of an hour of the service. But isn't it good? Did it make you feel good? Yeah? Just to have a hug. And it, it, it breaks down barriers as well, doesn't it? You know, it's so amazing. So... Thinking over the weeks that we've been hearing about being a high-impact church, how as Christians can we give the world a hug? Now, I've mentioned about town pastors, but there's plenty. You go online, and it says Love Ipswich. There's plenty of ways, I think, that as Christians, we can give the world a hug. In other words, make people feel better, but in the name of Christ. Now, how can we show grace? When relation to God, I'd like to use the word grace. Now, Why? Because I think it's a lovely word, and it's kept its specialness in the original much more than the alternative word of love. The autistic savant David Tammet says he sees numbers in colour. So if people give him numbers, every number seems to have a colour. Well, I see that word grace somehow in a different context, somebody just saying love. I see it as tender and honest, as lasting, and somehow describes love of God better than the kind of love that we humans exhibit. Does grace exist in church today? Would the murderer, the prostitute, the paedophile find grace? Do they deserve grace? In a sense, don't congregations on Sunday attend church out of a hunger for grace? But do we share that even to one another? How many of us continue to attend church in the hope that one day, maybe, grace will abound? Because despite our weaknesses, our message is the infinite grace of God. We as the church have a wonderful gift of grace to offer to a needy world. It's like fine wine, but sadly it's diluted in the vessel of the church. Here we are with the greatest gift, grace in the midst of a warring, vengeful, hateful, angry world, yet many, how much grace is shown to that needy world by those who should be giving it most, who receive most from God. Just imagine the outreach worker. They're talking to the prostitutes on the street and then they uh, want an acceptance, they're wanting love. And this outreach worker says, have you tried going to church? God's message of grace or love is there. How would she respond? Oh, yes, sure, I didn't think of that. Or, not on your Nelly, said politely. Um, They're the last ones who'd care and accept someone like me. That is how the prostitute or the thief or the outcast usually thinks of us. Yet these are the people who sought out Jesus. They actually went looking for him. Why? Why would these people go and look for a holy religious man? Because he lived out his religion. He lived out God's grace. He healed and loved and fed before he said, go and sin no more. And did they find him in the synagogue? No. He was where they were in the everyday places, doing everyday things. Do we really think that Jesus was a misery or a killjoy? I'm sure if he had been, he'd have been walking the towns and hills alone. He would have been preaching to mountains and not multitudes. If things he did and talked about had been like many of the other good men or prophets of the day, and there were many of them, he would have been reminded as just another holy man like the Pharisees. How much grace is shown inside our churches to our brothers and sisters? 
You know, there is and has been so much abuse that has happened in the name of the church over centuries. So much judging, so much lack of love. It may not be done deliberately, and sadly it's done because we don't know how to receive grace for ourselves and don't know how to live it out with each other. Why? Because a lack of self-worth. Don't let the lack of self-worth in you stop you accepting God's grace. God's spoken, written, proving, enduring love for you is the foundation on which you should base your self-worth. Love yourself and love others. And we're often unable to love each other unconditionally because we don't love ourselves. This stops us being able to accept aspects of another person's past. But who are we to dare to judge another? There are silent killers among us. They're full of self-pity and bitterness and hardness of heart. These silent killers kill passion for God and his people. And have we been Christians maybe too long to appreciate the exuberance of spiritual youth? Do we want to know about what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do and long for the evidence of the gifts of the Spirit? Or have we gone the other way by putting God in a straitjacket by saying that prophecy and tongues and healing, etc. are OTT? Do we talk about it but don't believe it in our hearts? We need to ask that God prevents us from becoming cynical. Paul said, get rid of all malice and bitterness. Have we learned to share and to be excited for others who God is using? Or do we sit back and, "Mm, I don't, you know, God doesn't ask me to do anything. Are you actually asking him? Are you actually listening if he tells you? Are you actually taking a step if it's scary? All congregations are a mix of hurt and bitter saved and unsaved, loving and unloving people. A truly dysfunctional family, if ever there was one. But God's grace can change all that. By his spirit, we can become a loving family instead of a dysfunctional one. By his grace. He loves us passionately. He delights in us. And do we feel the same about him and about each other? Religion can soon crush rather than liberate Could we feel able to share our guilt over past sins without feeling judged? Now, for example, could a woman who's worshipped with you, probably sat in the same seat next to you for years, even decades, feel able to share the pain over a past abortion, a gay son, or a failing marriage? Could a man share his guilt over a past affair, or admit he had a weakness for gambling or drink or drugs? What would your reaction be if your brother or sister in Christ came clean? So many hurting Christians just want to be loved and not judged. To feel compassion and not rebuke. How many of us would dare to bear our souls to those we take communion with? Yet if God has forgiven them, who are we to judge? How many souls have been lost or brothers and sisters have left the church because the church, us, have lost God's grace. All of humankind can find acceptance from Jesus because he loves each one of us. So can we remove our masks in this church? Dare we show ourselves to one another? Could we differ and not be afraid that what we said would not be held against us? We need to pray for and ask to genuinely love one another. 
If we have problems, let's sort them out so that God can do his work. Because believe me, when we're thriving and we're doing well, he'll get in there somehow, Satan, and he'll usually get in there with your relationships. So if you've got a problem, sort it, and sort it in the open and let God into it, because that's the only way you get rid of it. Let's pray for God to work his miracle of grace in each of our hearts. If we deny God, not only God, but we and the world will be losers. We have a unique religion. Our uniqueness is grace. The Buddhists have eightfold path. The Hindus have the doctrine of karma. The Jews have the covenant and the Muslims have the code of law. Each offers a way to earn approval. What do we have? God's unconditional love and forgiveness. Jesus exhibited his father's love to all who came to him. And God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has been found. The Christian gospel throws everything else on its head. It would seem to, we can't clean up our act. We can't go before him as being able to do that in our own, in our own light, can we? So we, why not admit it that we can't work our way to heaven? We can only ask for mercy, and Jesus always showed a preference for real people over good people. And Jesus said there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 religious people who do not repent. In other words, you sit on your seat each week, go out of there and forget everything that's said. Heaven isn't rejoicing over you, but he's rejoicing over you however many times you fall, however many times you need lifting up if you truly, truly want to have a relationship with God and really love his son. The thief on the cross may well have converted out of fear, and there's no doubt that Jesus would have known that. He would never study a Bible. He'd never attend a church or make amends to those he'd wronged. But Jesus, with all the love that he could give in the midst of his own pain and anguish, promised him a place in paradise. He promised because grace depends on what God has done for us, not what we have done for God. And if we put the crucifixion on, just to remind us, as I'm coming to the last bit now, if we haven't received Christ as Lord, it's time you did. He's there waiting for you. He's there because God is madly in love with you. Now, you need to believe that. And he hurts when you doubt it. Mozart's Requiem contains a wonderful line, and it says, Remember, merciful Jesu, that I am the cause of your journey. I am the cause of your journey. That journey he took willingly with all his love because you are precious and you all have a a notice that also says you are loved. Believe it about yourself and about each other. Everything you do should be motivated by love for him and then love for others and that everything else will just follow. You can't help but love others if you receive God's love for yourself. So let's examine ourselves. Just a few moments quiet. We're going to have Andrew. He's going to play um, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. We're not going to sing it, but I want you to let God speak to you to heal any bitterness in your life. I want you to smell the presence of God, to see his glory, to taste his love, to hear him call your name, to see his face. All your senses, just let God just minister to you now.